Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Robert Stevens, and this is the Black Work Experience Podcast. As you may know, I started this podcast because I was tired of being the only black male or one of the few black people at my organization. This can be crazy. I was constantly called upon to speak for the black experience or expected to do the emotional labor after blatantly racist things occurred. This is heavy, and it left me feeling fragile, unappreciated, and in need of a change. I began to ask my friends if they ever experienced being the one or one of the few people of color at their job and the impact it had upon them. We discussed what it felt like to experience microaggressions and not have a friend or ally to lean on. Balancing the thin line between needing your coins and not being tokenized is never easy. But guess what? You have us now, and we will always have your back. The Black Work Experience explores the intersection between race, class, and privilege in America and in the workplace. We tell the stories of those who paved and are currently paving the way. As people of color gain more institutional, political, and economic power, we often find ourselves surrounded by people who don't look like us, talk like us, or think like us. This podcast discusses what it's like to walk in the shoes of those and share their experiences. However, a lot of black people experience microaggressions on a daily, and we need an outlet. This is your outlet. You are not alone. This podcast is for all people, but we focus heavily on black people. I want you to know that you're not the only one experiencing microaggressions, otherness at work, or loneliness. If you identify with majority culture, listen to the podcast. Think about what you can do to help your black colleagues when your coworker talks over them runs to the manager instead of talking to them and having a difficult conversation or cause them intimidating. Guess what time it is? You guessed it, it's mail time. We had a lot of submissions for mail time this week. We ask you to please keep them coming. You can send us to a story via Instagram at BWEP pod or Twitter, BWEP podcast an email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. Let's get into the story. During an icebreaker at a team meeting, a fellow teacher came up to me and told me that when he first saw me, he was scared that I would be ghetto and ratchet, but was relieved when he heard the way my voice sounds because he knew for sure that I wasn't. Another teacher came up to me later and told me that he had never been with a black girl, but he would be interested. When I reported this, I was told their comments weren't racist. They were just from small towns and were curious. We talk all the time about protecting black women and what it means to protect black women, what it means to protect people in the workforce, in the workplace. And I think that it's super important that we believe black women when they share their stories. What we just heard was racist. It was workplace sexual discrimination and harassment. And I think that when black women and when people tell their stories, the biggest thing we can do is believe them, act upon them, and make sure that they feel supported. It's a shame that an educator in a school had to experience that. And when they went to look for help, there was no help to be found. When you hear these stories, when, we, when people share their mail time stories, I hope that you think about if you have a similar experiences at your place and what you can do to make sure for my white allies that you look out and you talk to the individuals and you take up for them. But for those who are not white, who are black, who are experiencing it, find your peace, find someone that you can share, that you can that you feel like you they will have your back. And don't stop telling, don't stop telling your stories. Don't stop showing up because that's what individuals are waiting on you to do. They're waiting on you to give up. We want to transition right now to our, our guest of honor. I'm so excited, elated to have Ashley. Hold on, let me let me put some respect on her name. Dr. Ashley Taylor um, with us today. Um, she, I mean, I, I must say that I know Ashley very well. I'm so proud of her. I was friends with her during her journey, um, becoming a, a PhD and, and, and obtaining that. And I know what it was like, you know, I would try to send her messages 
you know, encouraging her because I, I can imagine it must be hard. And, and I, as I was doing some research for this podcast today, I saw a lot of statistics about just like the lack of black PhD candidates. And we're going to jump into that in a little bit, but Ashley, let's, let's jump into it. Tell us about yourself. Who, who is Dr. Ashley Taylor? Um, who are you? Where are you from? And, and, and tell us about yourself. Yes. So thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, again, my name is Ashley Taylor. Um, I am originally from Queens, New York by ways of Piscataway, New Jersey. Um, my parents are heavily involved in STEM. That was one thing that they made sure we kind of had an interest for. And so my mom was in nursing in OR at NYU. Um, and my father was a computer electrical engineer and now he works at Colgate. Um, so ideally it was always about science in some kind of capacity, whether that was you know doing activities at home or going to mm -hmm. many different science fairs just to go. Um, and so we enjoyed it. And I remember, you know, my dad would bring these circuit boards home and we would play these games. And ideally, I, it, that wasn't fun to me. I knew that I liked science, but I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to go that route. Mm -hmm. um, no, no, no shade to engineers, but it just wasn't for me. Mm. Um, so ideally, it's just fast forward to high school where um, I finally met my match, which was chemistry. Okay. Um, it was my junior year of high school. I had a great grade in the class, but I also was in track and field. And so I threw shot put, jab, and discus. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one weekend we had a big meet. It was GMCs. And pretty much um, that's when a lot of the college recruiters would come. So I really was just focused in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I did well in the meet. It was great. And Monday I came in following the meet and my teacher was like, clear your desk. We have a test. Mm. And I'm like, uh, what test are we talking about? And so right. I take the test and I, I mean, I made a C on the test, which wasn't horrible. But at the same time, I knew that I had a high average in the class and I knew that mm -hmm. would kill my average. And so um, following that, we had parent teachers conferences and my teacher, she pretty much told my mom like, yeah, she shouldn't look into science. Mm. Um, and it was just simply off of that test grade. And for me, I'm like, that's all I know. Like, that's all I really had an interest for. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't sure where in science, but I knew that science was going to be the route that Ashley was taking. And um, at that time is when you're applying to colleges. And so for me, it was more so, you know what, I'm just going to apply to chemistry and see what happens. I'm going to prove her wrong. Right, right. Um, so really, I just I was on this track just to prove her wrong. I got into my different schools. Um, ended up getting accepted to Winston-Salem State University, which was my number one. Shout out to Winston-Salem State University. I want to All make day, sure everybody know that. <laughs> so that was my number one. Um, and so I went down there. We started a summer program um, before my first semester. So that was a great program. It was the SOP program, uh -huh. um, science outreach program. And okay. pretty much they picked top 50 students to come early and start courses um, before your freshman fall semester. And so very interesting because I'm a northerner. So we graduate in June from high school. Mm -hmm. So literally graduation weekend, I had to cancel my party and everything because I got my letter late being out of state. Mm -hmm. um, and so that weekend I had to drive down to Winston-Salem State to begin my college career. And so that's kind of the beginning of the journey of Ashley takes on chemistry full stream. Mm. Um, Tama, so what I'm hearing is I'm hearing two things. Number one, you know, your family's smart, smart. Like we, <laughs> so we're smart, smart. We got, oh, we got people working in OR. We got, you know, engineers. <laughs> but I'm also hearing the importance of exposure, even from a young age. So, you know, like your parents, seems like particularly your father exposed you to these, these, these engineering and these scientific sort of thought processes mm -hmm. that got you started and generated, do you think that had it not been for that, you would not have found your love for science? Um, I honestly, I, I believe, yeah, because I mean, really, that was the only thing that was kind of brought in the house. Like my parents had us on computers early, like we would be able to break down and put together computers because initially he was in hardware. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one thing that my parents kept straightforward and my mom and nursing, you know, she always brought me to the hospitals. Mm -hmm. Like anytime, you know, she would have free time, she would bring me there and I would be with the doctors and stuff. Um, but I was always afraid of the doctor. So mm -hmm. being, you know, being in that space, just seeing other people, you know, knowing that she was doing that area too, kind of, you know, inspired that science would be something, but we don't know what yet. So, um, yeah, definitely it was my parents' influence in the sense of showing us that because I, I really didn't know anything else. It was literally like I knew science was the thing. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're, you're Winston, you know, you're super smart, you're one of the top 50 students, uh, check you out. <laughs> Let's talk about like this, your experience at Winston, because Winston is an HBCU. Mm-hmm. And w- what I found in my research when I was preparing for this, you know, episode was that the vast majority of PhD students in STEM undergrad, they come from HBCUs, mm-hmm. right? What do you think it is that allows HBCUs to go and create PhD students? So I definitely think it comes all the way down to mentorship mm. um, and mentorship in the sense of when I was in the chemistry department, initially I was just coming to do school and I was trying to prove that point to that high school teacher. Um, so I was working in the office just you know, just trying to make money and in the chemistry department. And, you know, one of the professors, uh, Professor Sayo Fakayode, he's no longer at Winston, um, but he came into the office one day and was like, you know, you should be doing research. And I'm a freshman at the time. And so I'm mm-hmm. like, I have no idea what research is. Like I take lab class, but other than that, I don't know <laughs> what that is. And so um, I remember he invited me to um, these talks that the se- it was like a senior seminar and I'll never forget Japelle Sumter, who's like an amazing physician somewhere now. She has her own practice with a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, she was giving her research talk. And I remember sitting there and I literally had imposter syndrome in that moment because mm. it was more so of this girl is speaking so fluent about her chemistry. And I have no idea what this girl is talking about. And so for me, you know, now my high school teacher is in the back of my mind. And I'm thinking, like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. And, Mm. you know, he told me, he was like, no, like, obviously this girl has worked on this her whole time here. So she should know how to speak about her chemistry. It should just come fluid to her. And so, you know, he brought me under his wing and I started literally my research my freshman year, which wasn't usual at Winston-Salem State University. And I mean, this man took me under his wing in the sense of he took my schedule and any free time I had on my schedule, I was in the lab. He had me like going to different conferences. I was publishing papers like He always made sure I knew what new internship was popping up at any given moment. And not Mm -hmm. just that, you know, it was almost like a second father figure because I didn't really have a lot of family in Winston-Salem. I had an aunt who it was like amazing that she was in Winston-Salem of all places because I wanted to go there. Right. Um, But just to have somebody on campus to make sure that I was on the right path and the right path to success because- Again, I was only at school to, you know, I'm going to get this college degree. I'm going to prove this point. But I didn't really know what was after that. And so just with his mentorship and his guidance, like he knew like, oh, you're like he was putting it into me early that I would be attending LSU for grad school. And Hmm. in my mind, I was like, I mean, I thought I would just go to work, like going somewhere else, like going to school. I didn't never thought of like he Uh made sure that anytime I was at a conference or anything, like I was in front of grad schools presenting to them, trying to get to know who they were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just because, you know, he cared. He showed that, you know, we had something and we wanted to make sure that we built on top of that. Mm. Um, And just him having his PhD alone, you know, he had a postdoc from LSU. And so ideally how he kept me on that path was he had Professor Isaiah Warner from LSU, who's a world known chemist, black man. Um, He had him fly into Winston-Salem State just to come recruit me. Um, which was amazing because, you know, at that time, again, I'm not really thinking much of it. I'm like, yeah, I do research, I do chemistry and stuff, but this man made sure that, you know, I was making a name and a way for myself. No, that's dope. That's dope. When you think about how he was able to make that, like he really, he really set you on the path for the rest of your career. And sometimes, you know, I'm a proud, proud supporter of Winston-Salem State University, mm-hmm. uh, because I had professors do the same thing for me in a totally different department. Mm-hmm. But as I examined like what happened to you, and I know that we had the luxury of of being at an HBCU, but you know, I was looking at some statistics and uh, reading the Atlantic, it was an article in there, and it said that less than 6% of full-time faculty members at institutions across the country are black. So like many, and, and you know, there are like many factors that contribute to this. Uh, but one of the most is the significant is the perpetual just lack of PhD recipients, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, have you found? Did you find like supportive black PhD professors in your program, other than the one who flew in and and uh, recruited you? Yeah. So for me, um, LSU previously used to be number one in producing black PhDs in chemistry. 
Oh, wow. um, so that program, I mean, it was a known thing. Like any type of conference we went to, we had the highest amount of black people representing LSU and anywhere we went. And everybody knew it. It was always a matter, bet- I think it was a rival between us and Ohio State University. Mm. Um, but even coming to that program, he was the only one in that department. So oh, wow. that professor was making sure, and he's an older man, like he's well into his 70s now. Um, and he was flying out to in like different HBCUs because he was a graduate of Southern University. Okay. Um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is also an HBCU. And so he made sure that he was doing what he needed to do to make sure that, you know, we were being seen and not only being seen, the retention as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had him like, I, literally, I was in his office every other day, like, I can't do this. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why you thought I should be in this PhD program, but I can't do this. Um, but aside from that, I knew that mentorship was heavy. I still kept on to um, Professor Fakiode, and I also sought out other Black PhDs in different departments. So just to kind of balance out the sense of, okay, you know me from a scientific, you know, perspective, but, you know, I had people in, in, um, in higher education. I had people even in sports, like, mm-hmm. you know, I made sure I had people in other places that knew, can kind of, I guess, get a full circle as to who Ashley was and what it is she wanted to do. So they kind of understood, you know, how it is I approach different situations that were brought upon me. And so, um, I only had Professor Isaiah Warner in my specific department, but I made sure to go out and find other professors who could, I've, who I felt like could relate to me. Mm-hmm. You spoke about imposter syndrome mm-hmm. with Japel um, at Winston-Salem State University. Did you ever, did you ever feel that same sense of imposter syndrome at LSU? And like, what was your experience like being a black woman in a PhD program in chemistry at a like a tier 15, top, top tier research institution. What was that like? So, you know, bringing back that statistic of, you know, us being ranked number one for having, you know, those black PhDs in chemistry, you know, like I said, we only had that one black professor and then we just had us. So us in the sense of there were a lot of students who looked like me who were graduating. And then in my class, we maybe had like five out of 40 students. And then the number was dying a bit. And so it was almost like, yeah, we have all this greatness coming in and then these people are leaving. So now you're like, I'm just left with my thoughts and left with my thoughts in the sense of, you know, we had students who were from other ethnicities. We had a lot of Caucasian students and I'll never forget. Um, So we call ourselves the Flossie Posse ever since Girls Trip. Um, Mm -hmm. So me, um, Shout out the Girls Trip. Shout out the Girls Trip. Yes. So me, Rashanique, Jessica, and Christina, I'll never forget. We used to study, like, from day one, we latched on to each other, like, we're going to get through this program. Um, So we used to study all the time. Organic chemistry was never me and Jessica's strength, but it was Rashanique and Christina. So we used to study every day. Mm. Um, And I remember, you know, it came down to a point where there were students who were having study sessions and they never invited us, the four of us, just the four of us. They never invited us to these sessions. And so we came to them one time like, hey, you know, we noticed you guys are having your sessions. We have a session, too. Like, let's just come together. And when we came to this session, like they were legit just there to get our answers. Like we were working things out on the board, doing all these things. And they were just in there. They got the answers and dipped. And it was crazy because it's like, you know, we battle with ourselves in the sense of, are we supposed to be here? Like, we feel like we don't belong. We feel like we don't get it. Like, we're struggling so hard to do these things. Yet, our counterparts, you know, are taking our knowledge and applying it to their work, you know, to get that next grade and to pass the class. And so, I mean, there were so many different times where I just felt like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm downplaying myself. Like, yeah, I'm really not supposed to be here. But then, you know, you hear, you see outsiders kind of shining on what it is you're doing or using your platform to, you know, advance themselves. And it was kind of like a damn, like maybe I am doing something if they're using my material. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we experienced it all the time, even though we were that statistic in the program, you know, we only had each other and even having each other, we had our own struggles that we had to deal with because majority of us were out of state. Um, you know, only one person was from Baton Rouge. So she had her family there. And a lot of times we felt like, you know, maybe we need to leave and we need to be something that's relatable. We need to be around people that are like us. Um, but you know, it it was just a matter of, you know, this is the program trying to make sure you had that mentorship and that support. You had your circles to keep you moving. They kind of implemented in me or in my brain that, no, I was supposed to be here. Mm, You belong. Yeah. You belong. No, that's, that's fire. I think that that 
that whole system, that story, I've been in a, a lot of positions where you walk in and people are so smart, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, people know what they're doing and you're trying, there's a steep learning curve. Right. And you feel like you represent, you feel like you represent like all the black people. Yes. <laughs> and so like, there's like this, this immense amount of pressure that we put on ourselves to like be good and be great because like we just represent black people and we don't want anyone to think less of us. So exactly. I, I know that pressure. Um, and so, but you did it, you came out. What would you say to, to people who are listening to this podcast right now who want to pursue PhDs? Like, would you tell them it's worth it? Like, like, what do you say to that, that little black girl, that little black boy who says, you know what? I, I want to be a doctor. I'm going to be Dr. So-and-so. What do you say to him? Yeah, it's funny you asked that because literally right before we hopped on, I was talking to a friend who also went to Winston State University. Um, she's starting her PhD uh, PhD journey in Las Vegas, and you know she was telling me like they these people they're all white people they have no idea what a HBCU is, and her research you know pretty much her proposal is surrounding that idea of how to advance that. And so you know to her you know I was just telling her like this is a very touchy subject. Um, it's going to be very hard because you're talking to people who just simply don't believe mm-hmm. um, and they're going to challenge you. They're going to question you, um, even in a space where, you know, I had many times where I had research seminars or, you know, my friends had research seminars and they would question us down. They would kill us with so many questions in public, mm-hmm. whereas our other counterparts, they'll be like, oh, great. You know, that was a great presentation. That's all good. Where we're in there for hours getting challenged. And so, you know, they're, they're doing that for a reason. You obviously have something in a message that you're trying to get across that they think is crazy. And if it feels crazy, just do it. Because ideally, it's a matter of what are you contributing to, in my case, science? Aside of that, aside from that, you know, what's different? What's new? What are you trying to put into the world that people need to know? And not only just need to know what you feel that they need to know. Um, back then when I was in grad school, when people would ask me the same question, I would tell them it's dependent on the day. So if I had a bad day today, I'm like, don't do this, like run away as fast as you can. (laughs) Um, (laughs) because I wish I could run away. Um, but you know, on a great day, you know, I, I saw those statistics. I saw, I've been the person when they would tell me like, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be doing this and stuff like that. And I knew I had to prove them wrong. I still, to this day, think of my high school teacher and I have a dissertation printed out for her. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not to say that you're doing this for other people and try to prove to them what's going on. But at the same time, you know what your goal is, you know what you want to do and you know what it is that we need to put into this world. And so as a black woman, Black man, please show up because those numbers are kind of down too. We need y'all um, to come through, get these doctorates because we have a lot of work that we need to do and a lot of things we need to teach, um, you know, to just to get people going. No, that's real. Listen to me. First of all, I don't know if you petty or what, but I just heard you say that you got your dissertation <laughs> printed out for this for this teacher. You know, so when you see it, you're going to pass it to her like, oh, Ooh. I thought... Oh yeah, now you said I wasn't good enough to be so. I don't know if you may be the queen of petty. I'm not sure yet. The jury's still out. But, oh my god! But I I hear you on that. I hear you on that. You know, I think I think all too often we have teachers, and like as a former educator, I know how important speaking life is into children. Yes. It's just students. Like tell them that they can do it. Right. Tell them that you like. Hey, look, you know what you belong here. So so now nah, we're gonna if 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 I cuss. I, I, we would we would have some choice words for that, but I you just give it that back, dissertation. But yeah, <laughs> no, no. just give it that dissertation. And say, nah, I got you. How about now? Yes. You know, but look, you just said something about numbers and about how we need more. We need those black and brown children, students, black and brown kids to come into these PhD programs. Mm-hmm. And as I was, I was looking at some some stats. I saw that from 2002 to 2017, of the roughly 50,000 people who earn PhDs each year. The percentage who were black increased only modestly from 5.1 to 5.4 percent. Mm-hmm. So this is according to the National Science Foundation, right? Yes. But what I what I also saw was in 2017, there were more than a dozen fields. Like these are like subfields. So like I don't know what subfields of science are, but mm-hmm. like science, technology, engineering, and math, in which not one single doctoral degree was awarded to a black person anywhere in the U.S. So for 15 years. In these subfields, not one single black person received a PhD, a doctoral degree in STEM in these subfields. I don't even know like what that means. Like, like I can't even fathom like what that means. 
So would you, you, your degree is in chemistry. So you have a PhD in chemistry. Mm -hmm. Would that be considered a sub degree? So I have a PhD. It's in the chemistry field. The sub degree would be analytical chemistry. So that's where I am. I'm an analytical chemist, okay. but my specialty is in nanoscience and nanotechnology. So um, a lot of times what our professors would do, um, they would say, you know, think of chemistry as the whole globe, right? Mm -hmm. And within that globe, what you specialize in or what you get your PhD in is literally like a tree. Mm. So the whole globe and this globe. one tree is what you specialized in. So the fields are just very big because yeah. even within those subcategories, like I said, my subcategory is analytical chemistry, but I specifically specialize in nanoscience, nanotechnology, whereas somebody else were, um, I guess you could say even my previous um, in undergrad, my research area was analytical chemistry, but at that point I was in spectroscopy. So mm. it even it breaks down even smaller and smaller and smaller. And even those, you know, the stats, the numbers can be kind of iffy because I, for one, graduated in 2017. Mm. Um, but, you know, I remember looking at trend reports um, with a few friends to kind of look at those numbers to say, like, you know, where are we? How are we making movement? And I mean, the numbers were just crazy. It was, it was ridiculous. And it was a matter of like, why do we think this is happening? Um, and to kind of speak to that a little bit, um, I remember, I think it was my first to last year. I was, I was almost getting ready to, I was, I think I was already writing at this point. Mm -hmm. I worked for the department chair at LSU in chemistry. Um, and pretty much my job with her was to kind of reach out to alumni and write profiles on them as far as where they are now. Mm -hmm. And it was more so to kind of just show prospective students and current students, you know, the many different avenues you can take once you've obtained a PhD in chemistry from LSU. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, she knew recruitment was very heavy in my heart because my thing was, you know, we used to be this number, we keep using this number to, you know, market us, but we know that's not the case anymore. Right. And so, you know, I asked her, I made it my duty to whenever I went to conferences, if there were any local HBCUs, any uh, local community colleges, I wanted to go speak to them about the program to kind of let them know, hey, this is what's going on. And the reason mm -hmm. why I wanted to do that was because we were sitting in a meeting and I will never forget this one professor in organic. He said, you know, well, we don't want to go to those kind of schools because they don't really have talent. Ooh. Yes, he said that. And to me, it hit me because number one, I'm the only black person in this room. Mm -hmm. I'm the only graduate student in this room. Mm -hmm. I came from one of those schools. So it was a thing of like, well, where the hell do you think I came from? You know, where the hell do you think you got those black PhDs in chemistry from? We all exactly. came from different HBCUs, some smaller liberal institutions and so forth. So to say that was crazy. But at the same time, I'm in a position where I can't say nothing crazy because of politics. Right. Right. right because right. there's people in the room that are on my, you know, on my board. There's people in there that are against my advisor. There's people in there that's probably against me. And mm -hmm. so, you know, luckily there was this one PCHEM professor who was always usually quiet. And I was so proud that day because he just came out of nowhere and was like, well, how could you say something like that? Because most of our star talent are from those schools. Ooh. So you can't just knock those schools off the board. And it put that guy in his seat. He was kind of silent, like, oh, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. that makes sense. And it's like, bro, you have some of those students in your group. So how can you even say something like that? That's that bias. That's bias. And, exactly. and it, it makes me think automatically how is he interacting with those students? Like what sort of, what sort of reasonable assumptions or, you know, misassumptions are he, is he making as a result of like these deeply held biases that he's obviously showing? That's crazy. Right. So, I mean, to hear that and to have him say that, and I'm sitting in this room, you know, I remember leaving that meeting livid and I, you know, I had a really great relationship with, and her last name is Taylor also. So she's Professor Taylor. Um, I had a really great uh, relationship with her. So I, you know, I stressed, I stressed that, you know, I was upset and I couldn't believe, you know, he can just openly say something like that. And mm -hmm. I'm in that room. So you can only imagine the things that are said when I'm not in the room. Come on. Um, so, you know, with her, she supported me all the way. She made sure that, you know, when I went to these conferences, I did go recruit. I did go talk to students because I wanted them to know like, Hey, these people might be saying these things, but at the end of the day, you know what you have, and you know what you bring to the table. So you need right. to get out there. Boom. No, that's real. Do me a favor because a lot of people just have no concept of what a PhD journey looks like. Hmm. So, so like, what is the journey? So you take classes and then you do research and then you write a dissertation and you have to defend it. So help walk us through like the, the nuts and bolts of a PhD program. 
So I'll say very generically, because mine was very different. Um, okay. Um, very different. We can talk about that too. But um, so ideally you would take classes your first year. Um, and at that time, you're kind of interviewing professors to kind of see, you know, what area or what subcategory you're interested in. So subcategory mm. being maybe I want to be an inorganic chemist or I want to be an organic chemist, an analytical chemist, a polymer chemist, or um, I think that's it. Charge it to my Namahara. But yeah, I think that's it. So okay. pretty much those different areas you would look at um, and you would interview different professors in that area. And so by the time you got to your second semester of your first year, you have an idea as to who it is you're going to be joining. Mm -hmm. um, and aside from who it is you'll be joining, you kind of talk with them also to kind of figure out who's on your committee and your committee being, you know, the people that will be there during your general exam. Mm -hmm. um, which is what gets you to be a PhD candidate and the people that will be there once you defend the final dissertation defense. Um, and, you know, they're, they're pretty much there to kind of make sure like they're mediators of whatever could happen in the uh, chemistry program or your PhD program. So by year two, you're already full fledged into research. Um, they might have coursework that they want you to take, but ideally you're not really taking coursework. Um, you're working on your research to come up with your material, your thesis for your um general exam. And again, the general exam is normally an oral and a written portion. And this is when they determine if you're going to be a PhD candidate or if you're mm. going to be dismissed from the program. Mm. Um, so it's very, it's very stressful because now it's like, you know, in your mind, you plan to be here for the next five to six, however many years. Um, so this one test can let you know, kind of determine your fate. Right. Um, so after you do your PhD, um, candidacy exam, normally that's within, I think the first semester of your third year, um, from there, you're just working on your research to now work on your dissertation. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's usually dependent on your professor, whether they want you to kind of take some of the research that you've kind of started with your PhD candidacy and kind of build on that, or depending on if there's any type of different fellowships or different types of funding that they have for specific projects, they kind of let you know like, okay, what your specific niche is gonna be um, when it comes to you know developing what that research would look like for your dissertation. Mm, that sounds intense. I, you know, I'm gonna leave the PhDs to you all. I'm gonna just, <laughs> I'm gonna just stay over here with me. Let's, let's switch it up a little bit. Let's talk makeup. Let's talk okay. makeup. Let's talk makeup. <laughs> you know, we got, we got these, these makeup brands now coming out with, you know, all of these different shades and things of the sort. I know Fenty Beauty came out. Shout out to Rihanna. She ain't putting yes. music out. Rihanna ain't putting music out. We still <laughs> wait for an album from Rihanna, but shout out to Fenty and how she's been able to break barriers with Fenty Beauty. Yes. But before that, you know, there's a, apparently Black Opal, Opal Beauty, mm -hmm. and they, they cater to, like, darker-skinned people. Mm -hmm. So is there really a market for darker-skinned people, or did Rihanna come in and change the game? Rihanna came, in my words, in my opinion, I believe Rihanna changed the game. And I say that because ideally when you would go to, you know, drugstores or your local Ulta or Sephora, you would see kind of the basics of light, medium and dark. And the dark shade was still kind of in your light skin, your upper light skin area. Mm -hmm. um, so that did not help for people that had skin tones like me or even darker. Mm -hmm. um, and so when Rihanna came in with all those shades, it literally shook the room in the sense of now all these brands are trying to figure out, all right, we need to figure out these next few pigments. Mm. Um, and even then it's, it's, it's interesting. So I'm in the skincare industry, but makeup goes hand in hand with that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I say that to say that there's not that many of us in this industry, although we donate, I say donate, but we, we, we put a lot of money into this industry as black people. A lot of money. They, I, I was looking at some stats and they were just saying that like, like makeup is a $532 billion industry. Yes. And, and it's mostly black women in there, like spending money on makeup, you know, spending money on this. So you would think that, you know, let's cater to these women who are actually spending this money, not to say nobody else is, but you have to look at your statistic and see who is the highest spender in this area. Mm -hmm. um, so and even within that, you know, just being in industry, you know, you don't have many of those people working in labs. You don't have many of those people working in marketing. Um, a lot of times they don't really put a lot, pull up, I guess, pull us into the clinical studies for things. Um, and I, I'll never forget, I had a conversation about that in the sense of, you know, well, why aren't our numbers up there when it comes to clinical studies? Because obviously there's a target market. There's a market because we need to, you know, be inclusive. If these people are spending the money, you might as well make sure that they have an area to shop from. 
And so ideally they just said, you know, it's just easier. It was easier to see things on lighter skin. Um, and that's just straight up what she said. It was just easier th to see things on lighter skin. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me being in the lab, you know, I'm always thinking of, you know, what is it, how, how am I going to change things for us? Like, what are some of the problems that we have? Um, but when you're the only one, you know, you're not really moving anything. You don't really have a seat at the table to have that conversation. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a market for it because again, there's so many of us willing to put that money out there. We're buying many different things to make that happen. So I don't see why people aren't tapping in. Mm. So just help me out because mm -hmm. I'm trying to rationalize this before Rihanna came out with Fenty, mm -hmm. what was like artists or, and models like Lupita, you know, like what did they do? So I know for sure um, before Fenty, everybody was into the Mac, right? Everybody loved Mac. That was a very big bass brand. Right. Um, you always you always had your other little brands if you like specific things, but Mac was the big thing. Mm -hmm. um, I know, you know, I can't speak to Lupita's art artistry or her team or anything like that that help her with that but I know just me and friends like we would honestly take different shades and mix them to it where, makes them right oh. so you'd imagine how much more money we're spending just to get something that looks like us um versus somebody who can just walk in and just pick up their one shade and keep it moving mm. Mm. so I think about you know this is so interesting because this like this industry is predominantly, in my opinion, like buoyed by black women because I mean they just spend a lot of money on whether it's makeup, you know, hair, all of these things that comprise this this, this like beauty industry. But you just said something. There are very few people who look like you, you know, a black woman in the room making decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so how 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 have you used your access to power to create change? So um, for one thing, I am the only black person on our research and development team. Um, yeah, so you can imagine how many <laughs> times I have to be that black voice. Um, and I was also the only black PhD chemist in our brand, period. Um, so when it comes to that, you know, I came in different approaches in the sense of I will always ask my, my, my manager about different projects, you know, bring up different areas that I thought were of interest. Um, I even went to my director and, and looked at of our whole profile or our portfolio of all the different types of items that we've made, you know, I've tried to figure out ways to, you know, how do we market this to the black people? Because we know these are the concerns. I'm here to tell you that these are the concerns. There's data here, there's papers, there's mad journals on the concerns of the African-American woman when it comes to anti-aging. And I say mm -hmm. anti-aging because that's the field that I work in. Okay. Um, so it's not even like you need to create anything new. It's just a matter of taking those specific items that we have and kind of making a line that kind of caters to that or include being an inclusive in your marketing. And not only just the marketing, it comes down to clinical trials. A lot of times when we do clinical studies, you know, they'll, you know, survey people to come in, but when it comes to black people, those numbers aren't up there. And so I've came to the director about it. I've even came to the VP of our company about mm. it because again, I'm the only one. So, you know, they're not gonna really gonna go and search to get it anywhere else. And, and ideally, you know, I don't blame them in the sense of when it comes to anti-aging, black people aren't the first people you'll think of. You think right. of, you know, Caucasians, you'll think of Asians because they're the ones that deal with wrinkles and so forth and stuff like that. So, right, right. you know, that's just, and I mean, again, this is published material, this is known, so. Yeah, it's a fact, it's offended. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where I kept coming to them, I kept talking to them about it. Um, this summer made it real big, which is crazy because, you know, again, we deal with being black every day. Um, we deal with the terrors that come with being just who we are, you know, just having a different in skin kind of a skin tone type of thing. And so all of a sudden now they're interested in the sense of how do we market this? You know, what are we supposed mm. to do? And it's like, mm. I've been preaching this since I first walked in the door and exactly. preaching this in the sense of I'm a new scientist. Y'all know me from nowhere, but I'm gonna use my voice. And big at fact. the end of the day. I'm a black person, so I want to know what works for me. Um, so you're kind of seeing them kind of move towards asking those type of questions and understanding like, okay, we maybe need to look in this area. Absolutely. So you you really hit on one of the questions I was going to ask, like how many times have you been the only person 
of color or woman of color in the office. Oh, this is every day. Every day for me. So <laughs> every day is crazy because, you know, I am the voice. Like, it's like they come to me to say, Ashley, does this make sense? Or, you know, is this generically black people? Or, you know, it even comes down to like a lot of times scientists to scientists will try each other's prod like products and they'll be like, oh, let me try it on you to see if it whitens on your skin. And whitens in the sense of like, is it showing like a soapy thing or something like that? And I'm like, the fact that you can just use me to do that, is that not crazy? Like, th that's what you're using me for. You know, right, you're bringing right. me over here just to see if, if this is going to whiten on my skin. Like, what kind of, you know, feeling am I going to get using it just because I'm a black person? So, right. you know, this is this is every day for me. So when it comes to, you know, coming in, I, I sometimes I'm, I can reserve myself a little bit, but not really. Like, everybody knows when Ashley's in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's just something I deal with every day. Mm, mm. You, you talked about it being on your skin and it turning white. Some, so, you know, full disclosure, everyone, my wife is a makeup artist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she goes all around doing everyone's makeup and sometimes, you know, she'll, she will be in the bed and she'll look at videos on YouTube and these videos on YouTube, um, people record themselves going to other makeup artists to see like how terrible of a job that they do, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so like some of the critiques that I routinely hear, are, especially like this is in like Mac counters, Sephora counters where people go get their makeup is that the staff has not been trained on how to match foundations for darker skinned women. Mm -hmm. And that, and like, and that models, you know, in the beauty industry seldom look like us. Have you seen this trend that like people are not aware of how to match these things and stuff? So we used to have a pigmentation line um, from one of our sunscreens and we actually just, they canceled the line because it wasn't really doing well. Um, but a lot of times they would do color matching and color matching to whatever the competitor was. Um, and competitor in the sense of if another line had these three shades, they were only going to work to those three shades, maybe bring in one more. Um, but again, when it comes to trying to, you know, do testing and stuff like that, we're not in these rooms when it comes to testing. We're not even in these rooms when it comes to trying to get a focus group to do the testing on us. We're not considered. And so a lot of times when it comes to trying to figure out, well, what is the, what are the color profiles going to be for the line? They're ideally going for what they see is the face of the company. And ideally it's going to be that Caucasian or Asian woman. Mm. Um, and I say that also because, you know, a lot of times we look at Asian, we call it J beauty and K beauty. So beauty mm -hmm. from Japan and beauty from, um, uh, what you call it, uh, Korea. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when you're looking at those things, of course, you're not seeing black people at all. So they're kind of trying to figure out, well, what are the profiles that we need to match to that in the sense of what are their regimens, you know, what are they using and what, what do those products look like for them? So. It's just we're not in the room. Like we're not a thought. We're not a first thought or initial thought when it comes to beauty, unless you have a line like Rihanna, um, where she wants to focus on those things. They're only just waking up to this thing, as if black people just started being a person yesterday. Mm, and that is that's the crazy thing. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is bias. We talk about systemic bias. We talk about like racism. We talk about microaggressions on this podcast. Mm -hmm. You see these things in real time. Mm -hmm. Like when you go. When you go to the 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 beauty supply store, wherever you know you all get makeup from, mm -hmm. like, and you don't see any trends—not trends, but you don't see any um, foundations that mm -hmm. that match you. Like that's bias, right? And that's like people's biases living out in products that that we get. Right. Let's let's switch it up a little bit because you know I follow you on IG. We're friends on, on social media. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about hair. You know, I know you go from curly to braids to straight hair. Frequently, you can interlope between all three of those. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced any comments or, or uncomfortable moments as a result of how you wear, wear your hair at work or, or how, how has that been for you? So it's very interesting because you would think that working in beauty, you know, you can be expressive. You can be creative. Like you just come in how you come in. Um, but ideally, it's, it's not like that, at least in my experience where I've worked. Um, you know, the office is still kind of just like your everyday office and you just so happen to work in beauty. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, again, being the only black person, it's kind of like anything that I do, just breathing is like, oh, wow, like black people breathe like this. Like, it's just it's just different. Like I, I am in black a place. people breathe like this. <laughs> and I say it because I'm the only one. So. 
anything that I could do is it would be different. So, mm-hmm. you know, of course, anytime I come in, I'll, I'll never forget. This is even even like now this was in grad school. I think I straightened my hair mm-hmm. and you would think we're chemists, right? I work. I'm in the chemistry department where we, we should have an idea as to basic chemistry. This one guy, he came to me. He was like, wow, like, how'd you like grow your hair out like that? And I'm like, do you not understand that if I had this potion in a bottle to grow my hair overnight, like I would not be here with you trying to get a PhD. I would be Hello. in here buying islands because everybody's buying my product. Exactly. So <laughs> I was like, you know, just off of that, like you grew your hair overnight. So I had to sit there and think like, you're a scientist. And even then, like, this is just basic. So um, yeah, like I'll come to work and they'll be like, oh my God, like how long did it take you to straighten your hair? How long did it take to get it braided? Or you know, sometimes I get the comment of, oh, I like your hair better when it's straight. And I'm like, well, yes, you would like that because you want me to conform to European traits. So, you know, you, you get it all the time, even in beauty. It's crazy because, again, like I said, you would think in beauty, it's where you should be the most expressive because we're in an area where we can risk it all. But at the same time, you know, I'm the only black girl in the office. So anything that I could do would always be a different or a conversation starter. Right. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's so difficult. I think it's so difficult to be black and a woman and and do that. Has anyone ever really tried to touch your hair? Because I know oh, you were the curls. And, and what yes. did you do? How did you respond when that happened? I'll never forget. This was actually when I have braids. This one woman, I was in the cafeteria eating with a friend, um, and she just kind of launched to me. And she um, literally jumped at me and grabbed my braids. And I jumped. And my thing is, I really like this woman. She's awesome. She's very sweet, very nice. Always have conversation. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, girl, like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, my God, I just love your braids. Like, they're just so beautiful. Like, I've just never seen anything. Like, I I just was so interested. And for me, you know, I was taken aback because I'm like, I mean, I don't jump in touch your hair. Like your hair is nice. You have a nice hair color. Like, I think that's great, but I'm not going to jump in your space. So, you know, I I had to kind of let her know, like, yeah, like you jumped in my space that startled me and I I just don't like that. And she was very respectful of it. Again, we're really good friends. Like, you know, she's very sweet. We talk all the time, but it threw me off guard. And even my friend who is a Caucasian person who was sitting at the table, she, she even had a look like, girl, like, what are you doing? Like, why would you touch her? Like, why would you do something like that? So, you know, it, it happened. It happens all the time. Um, it, it's happened with braids. It's happened with my curls. Like, it's just, I don't understand what makes people think that they can just jump in the circle and just touch things. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I almost went to jail. My kids were, <laughs> and you know, I don't think I've ever shared this story on, on the podcast. But oh I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in Costco. Any of y'all who, you know, if you follow me on social media, you know, I have twins. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my, I go out, my girls, they, they just always been troopers. You know, when, when we first had them, I was running for office. So like they <laughs> always been in the public eye and I never forget. I was at Costco, um, in Costco, for those of you who know Costco, they have the buggies, the carts, but they have two seats. One of the only ones that have two seats. So you can put two kids in the front. Mm-hmm. And so my daughter's sitting up there, you know, went and did all our grocery shopping got pampers probably because hey listen if you just a quick aside do not have twins do not <laughs> do not have twins and pay for pampers but anyway so i'm in the checkout line at, at costco and you know i'm paying for it i push the girls up a little bit and the next thing i know this caucasian man older caucasian man sweaty hot i can see a sweat he takes his cap off and begins to try and put it on my daughter's head excuse me now, I mean, my daughter is, I mean, this is, he did it to Simone. Now, Simone is all of, I know she's not six months. So she had, you know what I mean? I know for a fact that she's no more than six oh months. Oh my God. And, you know, lice, just all sorts of things. And yeah, like, ew. And, like, and, and, you know, I literally almost went to jail um, because I I flipped out. I blew a gasket because the 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 gall, the unmitigated gall, that someone has to have to think that they can take a sweaty cap off their head and place it on my daughter's head. Like, yes. like, like, like I, I, I really almost went to jail. Like, you know, Costco employees had to come and defuse the situation, but don't do that. Don't that's, do that. That is, first of all, that's gross. First that of is all, gross. That's, and disrespectful. Not. Why would you even come near my child? Like, Who? no, 
who like who, who I don't know but but yeah so like I, I hear that and I see it that you know people try to touch children's hair they try to yeah so no I just I just never really had those experiences other than that one um let's talk about something that people always that that you may have had to deal with mm-hmm. people always say and I get it as well uh, like this term this angry black woman angry mm. black man Mm. How have you had to navigate that? Because you sit in a place of extreme privilege, being a PhD candidate, you walk into places, how you doing? I'm Dr. Taylor. You know, like, mm-hmm. ha- have you had to navigate also being like being called the angry black woman? What has that experience been like for you? So I've never been blatantly called an angry black woman, but a lot of people who know me as a person of, it's not that I don't have a filter. I have a professional filter. Mm. Um, and a professional filter in the sense of I will classy clap back anybody who comes, who comes disrespectful. Like you better come correct in any term. Cause I have no problem, you know, addressing what needs to be addressed. And you're um, from New York. And you're yes, from New York. Yeah. So it's, it's not a thing to me. Like my mom's Puerto Rican, my dad's Guyanese. So you have a Caribbean woman who can, they, they're already rude. They're already mm. rude. Mm. I'm a black girl. So y'all already trying to think that, you know, I, I come across a certain way. So it's it's just it's just so many different factors where it's like, please, please do not test me. Mm. Um, and so I'll never forget. A lot of people know also that I talk with facial expressions. So a lot of times I won't say anything. It'll just be my face. Um, and I remember when so when I started at my company, I was originally a contractor and then I was offered a full employee position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'll never forget. It was the first meeting that they allowed me to come to because as a contractor, I couldn't attend meetings. Mm. Um, so I go to this research meeting. And again, I'm the only PhD. Again, I, I that just means all that literally means is I problem solve things differently. I can approach problems and situations differently. And I have different avenues of as to how I would solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that nobody with PhD is up there. No, it's just I just have I, I just solve problems in a different way. I was given a longer time to just solve problems a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember going into this meeting and, you know, this guy is talking about his science and I didn't want to ask questions or anything like that. Cause I literally thought of being back in at LSU when people would challenge me down and challenge me down in the sense of I'm looking at this guy's, you know, study. And to me, I'm like, this looks like a hot ass mess. Like this doesn't make sense to me. This is crazy. Like, why would you even try that? Like none of this makes sense. And I'm just sitting in the meeting and I'm not in my head, but I'm sitting up front and at the end of the meeting, you know, as we are, we're leaving, we're going to our offices, my manager pulls me aside and she's like, oh, we're going to need to work on those facial expressions. And automatically to me, I turn around and I'm like, well, I'll show you my baby pictures right now to let you know that not a thing's going to change. Mm. And so it's funny because a lot of my friends who have worked with me will be like, actually, you can't say that. And I'm like, well, I said it. So what's up? Mm-hmm. So, you know, just off of that, you know, she would say work on facial expressions. So I'll bring up another, another example where my facial expressions became something again. Um, so again, I've always had facial expressions. That's something that they just had to get used to. Um, I was holding journal clubs because they thought that I guess the academics should host journal clubs for the office. So I hosted that. And this one girl, she presented a paper on anti-aging in African-American community. Now, when I saw that on the screen that this is what she was going to be presenting on, again, this is a Caucasian woman. I'm the only black person in the room. I'm looking at it like, okay, this conversation can go one or two ways, right? Like this could be a decent conversation. We can talk about this, have a great time, or this can be something that just derails and goes all the way left. Mm -hmm. So she has her conversation, she does her presentation and, you know, now everybody starts talking and, you know, you're starting to hear things like, oh, well, we already know this. So why are they even, why are they even able to publish on things like this? And in my mind, I'm not saying nothing in my mind. I'm like, you know, it's just obvious that, you know, we need to keep publishing on these things because you guys aren't tapping into this market. So how much more science should we show you to let you know you need to tap into this market? Right. Um, then this other woman says, you know, and I'm staring at the at the PowerPoint screen because my thing is I didn't want anybody to nod their head in agreement or concern for me because I'm the only black person in the room because I knew that I would flip. So I'm just staring at the, at, at the PowerPoint screen. So this way I just don't even know what's happening, but I can hear the conversation. Mm-hmm. And this one lady says, you know, well, I, you know, it's just like, you know, I remember in my days coming into beauty, like it was all about being light skinned, like everybody wanted to be lighter, um, which is okay. Like, yeah, colorism is a real thing. We can talk right. about it, but, you know, pump your brakes on how you're about to talk about this. 
And uh-huh. she goes on to say like, yeah, because in other countries, you know, if you're in lighter skin, you'll be at the house where if you're darker, you're going to be out in the field somewhere. So, oh. you know, that's why people would target, you know, the more lighter thing for higher status. And I did not know how, like I'm sitting there and I'm fuming, but I'm staring at the screen. Cause I'm like, if I could react, like I probably could lose my job today. Oh wow! And my manager, she's sitting next to me, the one who tells me I need to work my facial expressions. And she just leans over and she says, you're doing really well with your facial expression. Mm. After that, I mean, I just, I literally just went to my office and closed my door and locked it because I knew that anybody I talked to, you know, would be crazy. And, you know, being somebody who's very vocal about what they believe in, you know, they wanted me to present on this research. And I went to her because she wanted to see where I was up with, you know, my presentation. And I told her, I was like, how could you guys be so ignorant? Like, mm. how could you talk about these kind of things like that? And it's like, you're not even considering who's in the room. And aside from just who's in the room, I can only imagine what the hell you're saying if I'm not in this room. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, 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 it's one of those things of, you know, because I'm the only person and understanding, again, where I sit in this office, you know, I can only do so much. I can only say so much. But I do make sure that what I need to say has been said. And mm. it, it's always felt in the room because they're like, okay, Ashley has spoken. So, I mean, there's many other cases I could, I could speak on that, but it's endless. It's endless. I'm hearing, uh, it feels like this lady, you know, said, oh, we got the house slaves and we got the field slaves. And, and you I'm know, like, you wanna, girl. You want to be a house right. slave. In other countries, like your grandpa was probably, you know, a master. Like, what are you talking about? So I, when she said that, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, this is happening right now, right now. Wow. You, so you talked about your manager who told you about, about uh, your facial expressions. This brings me to a question I always like to ask people. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about an unexpected ally you had, right? Like, like when you had a colleague show up for you, and maybe that colleague is a person of color, obviously not in your case because you're the only person, you know, <laughs> but, but like when have you had an ally show up for you and like, like stand in the gap for you? And what has it, what did it look like? Yes. So there's this one girl I remember upon first meeting her, like it was very short, like, oh, this is this girl. And we were just like, oh, hey, hey, girl. Um, Hey, girl. Like, hey, girl, like, what's up? And so, you know, I never thought nothing past it. But, you know, after like kind of seeing different items or how involved she was into the company, you know, she started to grasp my attention. Like this girl is a Caucasian woman. She is in so many different employee research groups across the campus and just Mm. ally for everybody. She's always putting on some type of presentation, always making sure that there's inclusive environments. She makes sure that there's always something going on to make sure everybody feels welcomed. And so I'll never, even this summer, I'll never forget like going through like the whole, you know, George Floyd cases and stuff like that, trying to Mm -hmm. understand like, you know, now this is finally shaking the table. Like, as if that hasn't been happening. Like she has been there the whole time, like letting me know, like, you know, I had a place to talk. I had a place to express myself. Any kind of presentation I was putting on, she was there. She was sharing it, sharing it on her LinkedIn, sharing it on her personal pages, bringing her family into, you know, some of our meetings and some of our discussions and stuff like that to Mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, they knew where we stood, where she stood and to make sure that she was educating people. Like she is a very vocal person. She doesn't give a damn. It's, it's almost as if she is the Caucasian version of me. And so kind of, you know, at some point, like early in the beginning, I'm like, I don't know if me and this girl are going to click because we too much alike. Right. But at the same time, she showed up and showed out and continues to show out. And so, you know, now I look at her as like one of my sisters. Like she's like one person we allowed to come to the like family gatherings and stuff like that who don't look mm-hmm. like us. Exactly. Um, they invited but, you know, to the cookout. She, she, the cookout. she is invited to the cookout. She's been invited to Christmas, all of that. Um, but you know, she always, she's one who used her platform to make sure she educates people on not just black issues. I mean, Hispanic issues, Asians, anything you can think of like this girl, she definitely does her research. She makes sure she educates others and stuff like that. And so, um, I I love her to death. Like she's always good in my book. That's solid. That's Mm -hmm. solid. You brought up, you brought up something that was going to, I was going to ask you, like, how did you all navigate that? The George Floyd and like, you know, we saw a lot of companies put up, oh, you know, Amazon stands with black lives. (laughs) Salesforce believes that black lives matter. How did your company, you know, because you work for a major, a major, major company. Like, how did you all 
navigate those tumultuous waters, right? Of like Black Lives Matter, like like this summer of discontent. Like, what did you all do? And, and like, did you feel like, did you feel tokenized? Did you feel like people listened to your leadership? Like, how did you lean in? So I am the co-chair for our site for, um, it's called the AALC. So it's the African Ancestry Leadership Council. Um, and pretty much the, we, when I joined to be a co-lead, like, of course, I've been lead of many different things, e-board, all that stuff. You know, you do your work and you just keep it moving. And I thought it would just be that for this company. And this summer was something totally different. Like, we literally were waiting for our CEO to send an email. Like, as soon as things were happening, we're like, okay, like, is he going to send it? So he sent something. It was great. And we're like, okay, so what y'all going to do about it? And what y'all going to do about it in the sense of we didn't wait for them to start doing things. As an e-board, you know, we came together, we got our whole community together, we had discussions and stuff like that, and we brought it to our leadership team. And leadership team being, these are the VPs, CEOs, all those people up up there that you normally don't talk to. Mm -hmm. um, and based on doing these different presentations, we did presentations to different campuses, we did presentations globally to kind of talk about you know, not is it just what we are feeling, but some of the initiatives that we need to work on, what are things that we need to do and kind of show the retention of it, showing that this just ain't a moment, it's a movement. And so with that, we were able to kind of implement six different initiatives to where a lot of the leadership kind of now lead each of these areas. Um, aside from leading these areas, we actually just had a talk today, um, Dr. Aaron Smith of Temple University, amazing man, black man, He's in African American studies. Um, we have an ally with black um, communities group where he mm -hmm. actually came and spoke to like literally J like the company shuts down and they listen to this. Um, mm. But yeah, like we've been working on different initiatives internally as well as externally. So internally where it comes down to communications, comes down to training, comes down to recruitment. Um, we've been working externally when it talks about, you know, our political, you know, affiliates, we go down to laws and legislator, we go down to, you know, J&J sweet spot is, you know, healthcare. So we go down all the way down into the medical field and stuff like that. And so these aren't things that we're just talking about things. Now we actually show movement, we actually have activity and stuff going on. That's allowing members to kind of see where we are and where we need to make that push. Uh, which made me very proud because it wasn't a matter of just putting up something on social media to say we stand with you. We actually have movement on our initiatives. And that made me happy because I was like, I don't want this to be a thing where we're just saying something to say something so black people could feel okay about going to work. Um, I wanted to make sure that we're actually showing action. We're doing something about it. And we know that this is something that doesn't happen overnight, right. but the leadership team was willing to do what they needed to do to start implementing programs and so forth. And so we're doing a lot of things, which makes me very happy. But at the same time, I'm really tired um, because we're doing all these things on top of just day-to-day -day work, day-to-day -day exactly. living. Exactly, exactly. Um, but at the end of the day, it's if we want to see change, we got to do it. So I'm, I'm very proud of our leadership team. I'm very proud of our family, um, making sure that we're doing what we need to do to make sure that we have action versus just showing something just so people can be happy and continue to buy our products. Thank Listen, I, I have this final question for you. I, I feel like I've been exceptionally blessed, and I know that the listeners of the podcast feel the same way when they listen to this. But what do you say? What what, what are your, what are your last words of advice to that young black boy, young black man, young black woman, young brown woman, young brown man who are the only ones? They walk in every day. They feel the weight of oppression. They feel the weight of the systemic racism that exists in these organizations. What do you want to say to them, right? Because the whole purpose of this podcast is to create this community where people feel as if they have someone who has their back. They know that they're not the only one. Um, what do you say, right? Like, what do you say to these individuals who walk in these rooms and they're the only ones? What do you say to them? So um, something that I always just told myself was never let them tell you no. And it's very simple, very cliche, but had I listened to my high school teacher, you know, where would I be today? You know, I wouldn't know what school I would have went to. I don't know what I would have majored in. Probably wouldn't have been science. Um, probably wouldn't have this PhD, probably be working for this company and probably would not be making moves within the company, you know, probably not be in these rooms with leadership to make moves for our organization, for our people. Hmm. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, never let them tell you no, because at the end of the day, they want to see you fail. They don't want you to, you know, move forward or, you know, progress in any state. So this way they can continue to hold on to that seat. 
Um, because I kept that in my mind, I'm now in rooms that I didn't even know existed. Not mm. only just me being in rooms, but my name has been in many rooms that I didn't even know existed, which afforded me to move to the positions that I'm actually currently moving into. Uh, you know, I've been approached about opportunities and stuff like that, which I had no idea because, you know, just within where I individually worked, you know, they kind of put a cap as to, you know, this is what you are, this is what you do, and this is all you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so because, you know, knowing what that cap was and knowing what that gate looked like, I had to keep pushing. I had to keep speaking, talking, challenging myself to speak in front of people who I had no idea who I'm talking to, but I wanted them to hear my voice. And so had I let somebody like my teacher tell me, no, you can't do this and you shouldn't be able to do this, I would not be here at this podcast talking to you about my journey and what I have seen. Um, I honestly don't know where I would have been. Like, yes, I had great parents who pushed me to go into a specific area, but at the same time, they can only push me so far. I had to make decisions for myself. And so you know, I always say, and this, I still to this day, I tell myself, don't let them tell you no. You know, if anything, you tell them no. You know, you go ahead and turn down that opportunity. You do what you need to do to get to that next step. So never let them tell you no, because they don't want to see you there anyway. And if you let them win, they won. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's it. You all, thank you all. At, listen, Dr. Ashley Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Work Experience podcast. Like, this has been amazing. I want you to keep trailblazing, keep shining the light, keep that dissertation for that teacher who told you. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. I still haven't found her yet, but it's there. Keep (laughs) it, find it. But listen, thank you again for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and thank you for moving the needle forward for all Black people. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Black Workers Experience podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to hear more from me, Follow me on IG at BWE Pod or Twitter at BWE Podcast. Thanks, you all. Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out with. Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out with.